Father, we thank you for the, the privilege of seeing what you're doing in a far off place and the amazing things that are happening that are transforming people's lives. Father, I pray for those students who were in our class. Uh, thank you for their commitment and their passion for Jesus. May you keep that passion red hot in them. May you protect them. May you make them effective. May they be your, your force for change for the kingdom in, in Guinea. We lift up Nathan and Becky. We ask that you continue to protect them, uh, continue to use them, continue to, to help them be points of light in, in a dark place. Father, I pray for their kids, that you would keep them safe, uh, and that you would instill in them the same passion. Lord, help us as a church. Pray for them, be aware of their ministry, and realize that there are partners in the gospel halfway around the world. We thank you for what you're doing and the chance to be part of it as we pursue the kingdom. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen. We've been uh, talking about worship the last few weeks, so I wanted to begin this morning by asking a question and actually having you discuss it a little bit. I want you to nudge your neighbor, and I want you to ask the question, what makes great worship? You know? What for you makes worship great? How would you evaluate? So if you, you're not next to somebody, you need to move next to somebody so you can wrestle with this question. And then I'm gonna ask you to share what your neighbor says, and that's great because you can say anything you want and point to them, they said it, and it's a good opportunity. So what makes great worship? You might be thinking, oh, I really don't know, but you kind of ask yourself that question every time you leave because when you leave, you kind of evaluate in your head, how was the morning? <laughs> so all of us have some criteria. Okay, what'd you come up with? What makes great worship? Can't see very well. Can we bring up the lights just a little bit so I can see people? Yeah, Charlie? Great heart. Great heart, that's key. Awesome, what else? Being present, cool. What else? You guys are awful, come on. Interact with me a little bit this morning. Scripture center, okay, that, that's key. A focus on God, yeah, it's worship, obviously. That would be great. What else? Music, singing, great music, great singing, obviously. So people can engage, what else? Great theology, yeah, great preaching, right? Yes. Somebody said something else. I got distracted. <laughs> Practicing the presence. So God, a sense of God's presence and engaging with that. Prayer. Yeah, that would be key. Obedience. Good. When your heart's in the right place. 
Good, good. All, all those are, are great pieces that go into the experience of worship. I've been asking people this week and I've heard all those kind of things and the Holy Spirit and engagement, uh, just the kind of things you're saying. When I sat back and I tried to answer that question myself, that's the same kind of list I came up with. Uh, um, and although I think all those things are important, I kind of set you up this morning. Okay? Because this morning, I want us to look at what makes great worship, but I think the answer we're going to get from Scripture is maybe fundamentally different than how we typically think. We've been doing this series on worship, and Larry kicked it off by helping us look at worship in the Old Testament, and then Danielle took us to the New, and we saw the early church worshiped, and last week Larry talked about this this notion of revival and how it plays in worship. Next week, I'm really excited. Billy's gonna come and share with us why we do what we do in our worship services. You know, we don't just do the things we like or, or our personal preferences. We, we have some very intentional theological reasons we do what we do when we, we gather for worship. And we thought it would be great to share those with you so you might know and understand what, what we're trying to achieve. I'm not sure we always pull it, pull it off. Um, but this morning, I want us to talk about God's perspective on great worship. And, and I want to do it from a place that we don't typically go when we think of worship. It's James chapter 1. And the reason is because when we read this verse, we don't put it in the context of worship. James 1.27 says this. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And we come to that word religion, and we think that what James is talking about is the, our faith, the whole system, Christianity, that this is true and undefiled faith, religion, to, to you know, help orphans and be unpolluted. But I don't think that's what James is talking about. Uh, this word religion comes from a Greek word, thuskeia. And it's used in classical Greek literature to describe the ceremony of worship. In fact, one historian uses this word to describe uh, the worship that happens at the Jewish temple. So when James uses this word, he's not talking about the system of religion. He's talking about the liturgy or the ceremony that people who are part of that religion perform in devotion to their God. He's talking about worship. I like this definition, the zealous and diligent performance of the outward and ceremonial rites of worship. In fact, I wish our Bibles translated this is pure and undefiled worship because I think it would change our theology around this issue of worship. I think this passage is a convicting passage because it's going to give us a new framework, a different framework to think about this thing we call worship than we typically have. So he's talking about worship and he says, this is a pure and undefiled worship. And those two words, pure and faultless worship, is saying this, 
This is the kind of worship that's not tainted by bad motives. This is the kind of worship that, that isn't compromised in any way. It's like when you look at a diamond and you find just a perfectly cut diamond and, and there's no cloudiness in it and there's no little specks of carbon in it and it just has this brilliant clarity to it and there's no, I mean, it's just a perfect, faultless, pure diamond. That's what God is saying. Okay, I want to tell you this is perfect, faultless, great, awesome worship, the kind of worship that made me go, yeah, from God's perspective. And he says two things. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. (laughs) To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Uh, Why? What's the deal about orphans and widows? Why why does he pick them? Well, in that culture, you have to understand there's no safety net. In in other words, if you fell on hard times, the only thing you had to fall back onto was family. There was no Medicaid. There was no food pantries. There was no homeless shelters. Um, There was nothing the only safety net you had, the only protection you had was, was family. And if you didn't have family, you were incredibly vulnerable. If you were a woman and your husband died, you only had a couple options. Uh, you had the option to get remarried and find another male to take care of you, to, to go back to your father's home uh, to be taken care of, or to go to work, and the, the, the work option was to become a prostitute. So if you, you lost your husband, you were in a very precarious situation. Or if you were an orphan. I mean, if you're an orphan, you have no means of protection, no means of security, no means of, of producing a, a, a living. When we were in Guinea, we met a guy named David. David is the head of InterVarsity that works at the university there. It's just this fabulous Fabulous guy. Um, David became a believer when he was 12 years old and he was living in an animus family. His father had left and his mom got angry with him when he became a believer. So she kicked him out. And he had no place to go. And nobody would take him in because, you know, this is a family thing and you didn't want to alienate the other family. So for the next three years, David slept on the bench of one of the benches in the church. And people would slip him food and try to help him kind of under the table. At one point, David fell out of a tree he was climbing and he busted his wrist in a couple places and some of the villagers gathered around and got him medical treatment and uh, tried to contact his mom. She didn't come. About three weeks later, she comes and when she comes, she goes and she says thank you to all the people that helped David but won't see him. Won't see him. So when you're an orphan or a widow, you're vulnerable. You know, that passage tells us something interesting about the heart of God. God cares, has a special place in his heart for the marginal, for the most vulnerable, for the people on the edge, for the people that everybody else forgets about. And you see this as a consistent pattern with God. He 
He cares oftentimes about the well-being of those we don't care about much at all. In the Old Testament, it's called the quartet of the vulnerable. It's the orphan and widow, and then added to it is the poor and the immigrant. The poor, because they have no means of support, and the immigrant, because they're immigrant, they don't have land, and without land, you can't support yourself. So in Deuteronomy 10, verse 18 and 19, God says, you know, I love the immigrant. I love the alien. And, and, and you need to love the alien and the immigrant as well because they're the vulnerable. They're living on the margins. And that touches God's heart. And it's interesting, he says, we're to uh, take care of them in their distress. And this word for distress means pressure. It's this notion that when they hit hard times and when their life falls apart, we are to take care of them. And the word for take care of uh, simply means committed care. It's not simply give them a social visit or provide them a meal. It's in the present tense. So it's saying uh, you need to engage with them and on a continual basis, again and again, take care of them. Committed care. Committed care. And God says, ah, now that's great worship. That's awesome, man. That is music to my ears. See, worship, fundamentally, is about our compassion for others. I ran across this quote when I was wrestling with this. Can I, there we go. Religious observances, no matter how perfectly observed and appropriately reverent, are empty. There is no concern for the needy. We may participate in an elegant call to worship and prayer and heartily sing the glory of Patres, solemnly repeat the Apostles' Creed, join together on a grand hymn, reverently pray the Lord's Prayer, raise our hands as we sing the latest choruses and give significantly during the offering and then listen attentively to the word preached. But if we ignore the needy, our worship is as ashes on the altar. You know, there's some great worship that takes place here once a month. And, and, and when it happens, there's no band and there's no singing and there's no preaching. Once a month, we, we do night lights. Night lights is a, a ministry to provide respite care for uh, families with special need kids. And on those nights, on those Friday nights, when that happens here, I, I think God is pumped up. I think he's ready. Because, man, that is, that is worship. And I think he says, you know, <laughs> that's when Waterstone really worships well. <laughs> I, I know we think it's all on Sunday and Saturday. No, 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 no. Fridays, when those little kids are here. Oh, man, that's just awesome. <laughs> And what, what's funny is none of those people who are here serving and more interacting with all those little kids and those special needs families, none of them go home and say, boy, that was great worship. But it is. 
I have a friend named De uh, Phil Mitchell who works at CCU as a professor. He discipled me when I was younger and we were having lunch and at this point in his ministry he's working with a really small church in Boulder. And uh, uh, Phil has nine kids. <laughs> Six of them are his. He's adopted three. Stephen who is from India and, and, and Jess and, and Amar are from the inner city and they're black. And uh, Phil was telling me, you know, when it comes to adoption of orphans, uh, the primary people who do that are Christians. And that's especially so if the kids have special needs. He's telling me about his little church. I mean, his church is small. He, he said, over the course of years, we've had 30 families engage with orphans and orphanages in Cambodia. And I thought to myself as he was telling me this, oh, man, that, this little church understands worship really well. So God says, hey, great worship is compassion. And then, then he says, not only is it compassion, but great worship remains unpolluted by the world. If we could get the text back up. Great worship is measured by holiness. Look at the text again. Religion that our Godfather accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, when he uses that word world, he's not talking about the physical world. He's talking about the system. And, and, and he's saying, don't let the, the system of the world taint you. And, and it's interesting to me how we look at, at this notion of worldliness. When I first became a believer, worldliness was defined by, by a list of sins you shouldn't do. You know, and that, if you did them, you were worldly. If you smoked, you were worldly. If you were a guy and had long hair, you were worldly. If you were a woman and wore your dress just above the knees, that, that was worldly, you know? And it seemed that in that culture, anything that was uh, contemporary to modern culture was worldly. It, it was 30 years behind the times, uh, you were fine. But if it was current, it was I don't think that has anything to do with worldliness. Not at all. When he's talking about the world, he's talking about the culture and society and the system, but he's talking about it in terms of being absent of God. And he's saying, don't, don't let that God absence infect you. And, and I think it really has mostly to do with values and priorities and thinking. Right, Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. So this whole notion of worldliness isn't a list of sins, isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It, it, it has to do with what's going on in our hearts and how we're thinking and what we value and what we prioritize and the decisions we make and how we exercise our will. And when I began to realize that, I, I began to understand that, that staying unstained from the world is really difficult because we rub shoulders with it so much that its thinking begins to infiltrate our thinking and we don't even realize it. It all has to do with these issues of values. So when I begin to value a person or measure my own value by the digits, the number of digits in my salary, man, I've been, I've been tainted by the world. 
When I begin to think that power and money and prestige and notoriety and being known and famous are the, is what life's about, I've been tainted by the world. When I value my own comfort more than my commitment to the kingdom, polluted. When I'm more concerned about beauty and skill and talent than I am concerned about character and integrity, I've been tainted. When I use Jesus as a means to get happiness rather than my relationship with him as a way to serve the kingdom, I bought into the world. When I try to make life, you know, rotate and dance around me as if I'm the center of it rather than having my life rotate and dance around him, King Jesus, I've been polluted by the world. And it's so subtle. Because the people outside of me, they they might might not even know, probably don't know. Because it's what's going on inside of my heart and what I value and what I'm committed to and what my priorities are. You know, the positive way to say this is that great worship is holiness. Holiness is this word that means being set apart for God. It's this notion that our total allegiance is to him as king. And when we give our total allegiance to him as king and we struggle to be holy and we struggle to be obedient because he's our king and and struggle to put him first and keep him first and struggle to have life rotate around him in in every dimension and and when we give in to obedience in terms of how we use our money and how we do sex and how we do family and how we do business and, and everything is centered around man God says oh that's great worship I like what D.A. Carson writes about this. This is really convicting to me. He said, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. So James is saying, look, great worship from God's perspective is all about our compassion and our care for the most vulnerable and our struggle towards holiness. And now then, we need to ask ourselves, okay, what kind of worshiper am I? Where in my life do I worship by by exercising compassion? Where do I, I, I touch those on the fringe and those who are marginal and those who are most vulnerable and those who are needy? And do I even care about their well-being? 
Or am I so wrapped up in myself that I really never have an opportunity to worship through compassion? And how am I on this holiness thing? Am I really engaged? I mean, none of us are gonna be perfect. None of us have our acts all together. That's God's grace. But I think he's asking for direction and orientation and struggle and working towards keeping our allegiance to focus on him. And how are we at that? Are we struggling towards holiness and obedience? Or is Jesus just an afterthought? You know what was convicting to me is because when I think of great worship, I'm like you, I'm thinking, man, it takes place in here and it's this great experience of the presence of God that moves me emotionally and grips my heart and, 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 and I don't even think about it, but you know what I'm doing is I'm making it all about me rather than about him. And he's saying, you know, that's nice. It's frosting on the cake. But, but the measure of great worship doesn't take place in here. The measure of great worship takes place out there. That's really where the worship happens. How you love people and how you love God. Which raises a great question. Why is great worship measured by compassion and holiness? Why are they the markers? Let me do two quick word studies, okay, that I think answer this question for us. The the first one is this word image. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, we're told that uh, men and women are created in the image of God. And we usually think image means, you know, intellect, emotion, will, and we look at it that way. Image, there's a different way of looking at image and seeing it in terms of substance. Image is this word, selim in the Hebrew, that actually means statue. (laughs) And uh, a statue represents God. So when God says, hey, we're not to make any idols, the word he uses for idol, guess what? It's the word image. We're we're not to make any little images of God that represent God. You know why? Because God already has his idols. Guess what? They're us. We're his idols. And we're given this, this job description back in Genesis 1. You know, God is king and he rules the universe, but the first time the word rule is used, it's used in relationship to his creation, us. He says, you idols, now you're to go exercise dominion and rule the earth. You know what he's saying? He's saying we are his royal representatives in the world and we're to operate in such a way that we represent him and his values and his heart. So that in the end, he is glorified, lifted up, magnified. We're we're the little statues that they would put out in front of cities to to proclaim the reality of the king or the God. That's us. And we're to live in such a way as to bring him glory. And glory is this interesting term. When we think of bringing God glory, we, we usually think, I think, about praising God and boasting about God and kind of a Greek way of looking at it. In the Old Testament, glory comes from this word kavod. 
And it literally means heavy. So a stone that's heavy is glorious because it's heavy, it has weight, it has matter, it has significance. In fact, the word is used interestingly in Judges chapter three. Remember the story of Eglon, Ehud and Eglon? Ehud is the left-handed judge. And because he's left-handed, he wears his sword on the opposite side. He's able to sneak in to Eglon, who is the king. And he takes out his sword because they didn't know he had it. And he plunges it in Eglon's stomach. And the text is very descriptive. It says, and his stomach swallowed up the sword. It's gross. You know what? Eglon's fat. And the way the text describes him, he's kavod, kavod. He's heavy, heavy. <laughs> Literally, man, this man is big. That's the word kavod. That's how it's used literally, but it's also used metaphorically. And when it's used metaphorically, it's used to tie, to describe somebody's significance that they have weight or gravitas or, or, or reputation or credibility. So Psalm 19 says that the whole earth and the heavens proclaim the glory of God. They proclaim his, his majesty, his reputation, his honor. I mean, you talk about significant. That's who God is. And our whole purpose in life is to bring him glory, to enhance his reputation, to bring him honor. Not just with our lips, but with our lives. And you see, that's the thing. We can add to somebody's kavod or we can detract from it. And we add or detract from it by how we live. And when we represent God's heart well and we live in holiness and obedience, God is up in heaven going, awesome job. Because we're magnifying his reputation and his credibility because that's what life is all about. So, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in all, we're, in all we do, in all of life, we're to bring God honor and glory. That's why worship isn't measured so much by what we do in here, but measured by what we do out there. So let me give you three little things to remember. Number one, corporate worship matters. And I don't want you to walk away and say, oh, so what we do on Sundays doesn't matter. We just go help the poor and live holy and we can forget church. You're missing the point. This is important. This, Folks, do you know what we're doing when we come together and we sing and we worship and we listen? We're bringing God glory. When you take the most beautiful words, which are poetry, and the most beautiful sound, which is music, and you put them together to praise and honor God, he's glorified. So, so this is a corporate expression of us glorifying God. It's a moment we gather to do corporately what we've been doing all week out there. The concern is that what we say in here measures up to what we do out there and how we live. So this is important. It's important for us. It helps us grow. It helps us transform. It's an important worship to, to the world. We want to do it well so they're attracted to this God's whose reputation is on the line. 
So this matters. But second, worship is not about us. It's about God's glory. I do this, you do this, our culture does this. We've made worship about this performance that we want to be really good. So we have this great experience and are moved and engaged and sense God's presence. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that isn't the issue. Do you, do you know that God can be worshiped with crappy music and lousy singing and mediocre preaching? That old guy who comes into worship, who can't carry a tune, who has a gravelly voice, who sings off key. But is expressing his heart. God is looking at him going, wow, that's hard worship, that's awesome, that's great. Especially when it measures up to his life. And you know when that really hot band gets up and they're playing and everybody has their hands and everybody's emotional and oh, this is great worship. And you know the band is kind of into it and impressed with themselves and people are looking at them in this performance. You know God is up there going, oh. oh, not us. That was great worship. Really? Oh yeah, it moved me. Folks, it wasn't about you. Might be great music, might great worship, might not be great worship. So you see, great worship is ultimately measured by our lives. By how we live. I, I mean do we care about the poor? Do we care about the immigrant? Do we care about the orphan? The widow, the people on the margins, the people who are homeless, the people who are getting out of prison, the people who are just struggling to get by? Or have we completely isolated ourselves from them? Because we're playing it safe. And do we realize that in everything we do in life, God's reputation is at stake? How we do our business, how we speak, how we love our wives and our families, how we care about our neighbors. You know, Micah 6 is a fascinating passage. The prophet talks about all the things that God has done for Israel and then asks the question, so Lord, what do you require of us? And the prophet says, do you require thousands of sacrifices of bulls? Do you require oil poured out? Do, do you require even the sacrifice of our, our children? What, what is it, Lord, that you require? What would be great worship from you? Is it a matter of lifting our hands? Is it a matter of tears in our eyes? Is it a matter of speaking with our lips? What is, what do you require, Lord? And you know what Micah says? 
This is what the Lord requires. That you act justly. That you love mercy. And that you walk humbly with your God. Act justly, care about those whose rights have been violated. Love mercy, the word is hesed. Love those around you with absolute compassion. Walk humbly, make God the center of your life. Worship by compassion and a struggle for holiness. And God thinks that's grand. The question is, do we? Let's pray. Father, we want to be a church that worships well. But to be honest, Lord, I get confused about that sometimes. I think we do. Unintentionally, we, we make it about what it's not. Help us worship well in here as we sing and we listen and we want to be transformed. But even more importantly, Lord, help us worship well out there. Make us people of compassion, people of obedience. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake, amen.